You're listening to Don't Waste Water. I'm not a McKinsey or Holland Berg or the KPMG. I'm at KMM Consulting. So I focus more on the niche markets where the big guys are not looking at. This is the smaller companies. My size is between startup companies with zero revenues up to 30 million euro revenues. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. In most cases, there is a succession problem that the founders have no kids or nobody who succession, therefore they want to sell. But this is the major part of the sales side mandates which I have. Sometimes I have also companies who have reached their limit. They need a strategic partner to continue to grow. I'm your host, Antoine Walter. And in today's episode, I'm glad to welcome Carl Michael Millauer as my guest. The founders are always overestimating the value of its company. If you, as a consultant, tell them this valuation is too high, then they will look for another consultant. They want to hear what they believe, but without some bigger part of sales, I would say five times, six times EBIT is the maximum you can get. Carl Michael is the founder of KMM Consulting and a former C-level executive in some emblematic water groups like BWT, Christ Water Technology, Aquatech International and Aquarion AG. The smaller companies where the owner have put personal guarantees for bond lines, for credit lines, they have a certain limit. They do not want to go beyond this, otherwise they risk their home and everything. The only problem is when the whole company is focused on this person only, it's very difficult to sell. Because every buyer says, sorry, I need you for another two, three years. Yeah, we have to build up a successor and they're all nervous when he leaves. What happens with the networks, with the contacts, all these things. KMM Consulting helps clients around the globe leverage opportunities in the world of water through mergers and acquisitions, finance and funding, business development and strategic support. The water industry features some behemoths that regularly make the news. Veolia, Xylem, Suez, I mean you know the usual suspects as I have been featuring them every time there was noteworthy news to share about them. Then uh, there's a fascinating wave of cool kids worth several thousands of millions like 374 Water, which I had on this microphone, or MX Filtration, which I should have on this microphone at some point, that's my mistake for not inviting them yet and a growing pack of high-profile scale-ups raising tens of millions in seed rounds and Series A, like my former guests Clear, Epic Cleantech, Source or Zwitterco. Yet, the water sector is also one of these typical places where the iceberg metaphor holds true. I see you rolling your eyes because that damn iceberg is overused, but bear with me. The 50 largest water companies combined only represents 25% of the total market, which, by extension, highlights how there's a notion of small-sized players that support all shades of water applications. How many? I can't tell. And despite looking around, I couldn't put my hands on even the beginning of a statistic that would depict this bottom of the pyramid. I guess that's one more proof that while big players get a lot of attention, expert support and coverage when they merge or consolidate, smaller actors have long been left in a no-man's land. Well, this is the no-man's land I'm inviting you to explore this week with Carl Michael. And it's pure serendipity, I wanted to cover that topic for a while, so I got very curious when Global Water Intelligence introduced their Opportunity Exchange platform, featuring dozens of smaller-sized water companies looking for funding, a new owner, a distribution partner or a licensee. 
Why serendipity? Well, the 35 first opportunities listed on this marketplace were all coming from Carl Michael Millauer. So I reached out and you'll get to discover in a minute all of his openness to share a bit of his work and world. Right before that, I'd like to thank from the bottom of my heart all the new listeners that came and joined me on this podcasting journey over the past weeks. I'm so happy to see the nice growth of this channel. I'm a one-man band. I'm running this podcast on my free time and let's be real at my own expense as well. I love doing it for sure, but it's good in my long and tiring editing evenings to realize it's not for nothing and it's bringing you some value. So here's today's call to action. We'll have a special episode next week to close this season 8 and I have almost finished recording a special mini season 9 that will look into the depth of the lithium industry and value chain and how that's an incredible opportunity for the water industry. I'm super excited to share this one with you, so stay tuned. This also means that I now have a bit of time to think of the upcoming season 10 and that's where I need you. If you have special wishes, areas you'd like me to explore for you, questions that keep you up at night or guests you'd like to suggest to me, that's your chance. Reach out to me on LinkedIn or send me an email at antoine at dww.show. The link is in the show notes and I'll make sure that season 10 serves you well. Come on, do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Carl Michael. Welcome to the show. Hello, good morning. I'm very excited to have you on that microphone because you have a profile which is quite rare in this industry. And there's so many topics on my wish list to discuss with you today that it might be a packed discussion, but I have traditions on this microphone and it starts with my opening question, which is, what can you tell me about the place you're at, which is Zurich, which I would ignore by now. I'm living here since now more than 20 years in Switzerland, but I'm traveling a lot all over the world. I see me as a very cosmopolitan and as an Austrian based in Switzerland, but you need something like you call home. So at the moment, my home is Zurich. You mentioned a bit this traveler experience and the fact that you're in a cosmopolitan place. You've lived three lives, if I'm right, in this industry. You've been first outside of the water sector and you've had a career in finance and banking. Then you've been inside the water sector and you've had several C-suit positions in this industry. And we go in more depth of that later. But lately you founded KMM Consulting. I was wondering what guided you across these three lives? Is there like a red thread? As you say correctly, I started law and business administration. So I'm a commercial guy, not a technical guy. I was always in financing. I've done many IPOs in Austria before I joined and in 2001 PWD Group. And I had a reputation of making successful IPOs and PWD asked me to join to make out of the engineering group 
a nice business unit organization and make the company fit for an IPO. That was my mission when I came. So I moved to Switzerland because the biggest company in this PWT empire was Christwater, which was listed on Zurich stock market. That was my mission. But then when I started in the water business, I got, let's say, under gimmicks infected from water because I came from luxury fashion, luxury industry. And I was, of course, very fascinated about the water and how important this is for human life and for the planet. So I feel more satisfaction in dealing with water and water issues. Yeah. And what leads you then to found KMM Consulting? Yeah, I think that is more or less when you have an active career on sea levels. And I have been in many companies, few companies in sea level functions. I think at the end of your career, you have gained so much experience. You have a tremendous network. It makes more fun to be consultant than to run operatively a group. And yeah, it makes more fun and you can really leverage your network and you can attend to conferences, trade shows. You can meet people which you can't do when you're running a water company, a water group. You're too much engaged with operations. You, you mentioned your network and you mentioned how you can interact. So I think that's what leads us to the heart of that conversation today, because I followed this inception by GWI of their opportunity platform, opportunity exchange platform. And I thought that's interesting. And I had Christopher Gasson on that microphone a while ago. And so I looked out out of curiosity what was there on the platform and a lot of very interesting companies and offers and perspectives were proposed there. And at the time I looked, there were 35 opportunities on that platform. And I started clicking those opportunities one by one. And your name was all over the place. In every single opportunity, you were the contact person, you were the person to introduce it. And it was like 35 companies and not like uninteresting ones, the total opposite, like really cool stuff. And I'm wondering, how do you build a portfolio of 35 companies which work with you? And why did you list them on that opportunity platform? First of all, I have always a close relation to GWI since long time, since I started in water business. I was the initiator of this idea because I want to reach a very big publicum, a big auditorium, and GWI is certainly the best to do that. So we were working on such a platform together with, with Louis and other. And secondly, yes, why? Yeah, I'm not a McKinsey or Roland Berg or the KPMG, I'm in a KMM Consulting. So I focus more on the niche markets where the big guys are not looking at. This is the smaller companies. My size is between startup companies with zero revenues up to 30 million euro revenues. Most of my companies are between five and 15 million euro revenues. And this is a category which they do not pay retainers to the big guys. They need to be made fit for a new owner. So this is when I have sales side or capital raise mandates. And I saw there's a, a big demand in the market from a lot of small companies and startup companies to get capital or to sell or to get licenses. While when I have search mandates, what I also have, these are always big groups. These are big groups looking in the market and asking me to, I know what they're looking for. So if it matches, then I bring them to these targets. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack. So let's start by the end. Search mandates, I guess, is when you have a big group which is looking for a target and then you are actively looking on the market, what would be the right target? Do I understand that one right? 
Yes, but there's not one. I did many mandates. You get an, a mandate from a huge water group or from a bigger one, which gave me a clear mandate, a profile, and I screen the market worldwide or in Europe or Asia. And then I bring them a long list. And out of that, we take a short list and then I approach them and see if they're actionable or not. This is the way, but that the overwhelming part of my activities are certainly sell side or capital raise mandates. Yeah. You mentioned how you worked closely with JWI and Louis de la Pasteur, right? Yeah. The person yeah, you were working yeah, with? Yeah. So you were the person who came to them and said, look, there's an opportunity. I think you should be looking into that. And they created it on your initiative. Yes. I talked first with Christopher Gasson, then with Sebastian Lennox, and then I was working on the realization and the implementation with Louis. Yeah. What's your relationship to these companies, which you're helping this niche ones, which are looking for investment or partnership, which is not covered by the big guys? How do you interact with them? Yeah, first of all, I know many of them from my active career as CEO. Mm -hmm. So I know many companies, visit them, approach them. Certainly most companies I have in Europe, but I have also in Middle East and in Southeast Asia, a couple of clients. And of course, few in the United States. So this is my portfolio. So I know them. And in most cases, there is a succession problem that the founders have no kids or nobody who succession. Therefore, they want to sell. But this is the major part of the sales side mandates, which I have. Sometimes I have also companies who have reached their limit. They need a strategic partner to continue to grow. And then this is also a driver of such a sales side, or let's say not real sales side. Very often it's only that somebody invests money in the company, get majority, and then they can continue the business, but with much more power. I don't know how much of that is confidential, so you'll tell me, but can we name one or two examples and look at the path, how an investment at that stage would change their path and what's the kind of investment or partnership which would really make a difference? I cannot disclose this, but it's anyway, as I told you, there are small caps sized companies in this range. They are all profitable and have not one loss making company. There are very, some very good, but it's not easy to find for small companies with six or eight million euro sales a buyer because it's too small for most of the companies I'm contacting. So it's more interesting for smaller companies want to buy a smaller one to get bigger. That's the main reason, but it must fit. I have some deals running and the longer I make it, the more I'm known in the market. And certainly GWI helps here a lot as well, but I'm also attending many conferences and also trade shows and so on. So one of these use cases you, you mentioned is there is a succession story where the owner wants to retire and there is no succession land. So one of the ways to evolve from that might be to consolidate the company into another one. How often does that case happen in the water sector? Yeah, in the smaller companies, I would say two thirds of my sales side mandates are such cases where the owner, mostly the founder, have no successor and wants to sell the company. And one third is really companies which look for a strategic buyer or a finance investor to grow the company because they've reached the limits. You mentioned how these, these big groups have a hard time investing in small-sized companies. And I leave that firsthand in my duties at GF Piping Systems. We're looking for middle-sized companies. But these 
middle-sized companies don't really exist on the market anymore. And these small-sized companies have a lot of wealth and very interesting access to market technologies to offer. So do you think you need to educate that market so that even the big groups are looking into these smaller gems? Yes, of course, I would say. Because, okay, if it's a normal Me Too engineering company, but they make profit. I have companies which make since 45 years profit, not one year loss making. I have companies which have found very good niches, which are scalable. And of course, I have many companies here which say minimum size is 20 million. Otherwise, we don't look at a smaller company. I think, of course, that may be a mistake. On the other side, I understand the huge groups because they have to spend a lot of resources for small companies. So I think when they should have a more differentiating look and see if it's scalable or not. And then they decide if to look at that. But I know with many companies, I cannot approach the bigger companies because I have a minimum sales target what they want to have otherwise they don't look at this opportunity so do you try to convince them and you actively go into these groups and say i understand why you're not interested but i think you're making a mistake no i would say this very clear they look when i say have a look they look and then they said yes come back to me when they are bigger when they get bigger and that, that is not so much time i do not have so i'm, I'm trying then to find mid-sized companies which are more interested well, sometimes you find also water funds who are investing in that if they think it's interested to, to give them a growth possibility. Challenging is always in this that the founders are always overestimating the value of its company. So this takes sometimes one, two years until they realize the real value of their company and then they came down. If you, as a consultant, tell them this valuation is too high, then they will look for another consultant. They want to hear what they believe. Uh, and therefore, I also learned my lessons. But of course, you can argue with multiples. Uh, but when they came with multiples for Veolia Mobile Water with 22 times EBITDA, I tell them, forget it. You, you are a, a four or five million euro company. This is a, a 60 million euro. There's a huge difference huh, in, in size and recurve. So I have to explain a lot. And very often, the companies have not a good accounting. We have to also make them fit. They have also partly not audited numbers. I told you have to pay that they don't want to spend the money for audit. So it's not so easy as it looks like to make them fit for a, an acquisition for other parties. You mentioned the example of Veolia Mobile Solutions, which was sold to Nihus or SOAR with this 22 times the EBITDA multiple, do you have like a rule of thumb for a smaller size company, let's say with sales under 10 million euros, which would be a reasonable target in terms of multiple? Yes, I would say if they all depends here on their recurring revenues, do they have a higher percentage of their revenues in the recurring revenues? It's a value driver, no doubt. But without some bigger part of sales, I would say five times, six times EBIT is the maximum you can get. If you have more recurring revenues, you may have able to go a bit higher. When they have some special IP or a technology, then it's a different story. And then it's the question what the strategic buyer sees as value in this technology. But very often this is then attached to an earnout. They don't like to pay upfront something. It's too risky. 
but there's an earnout solution then for such cases. But the market is coming down because the interest rate have now increased. So now I see the market is calming down. It was a bit overheated the last two years. I think the multiples are dropping now, at least what I have seen. There are many elements of that heat when you have the number one in the world acquiring the number two in the world, and then some months later, Xylem acquiring Evoqua. It gives this sense of consolidation is happening. We need to move. And maybe that drives the price up as well. You mentioned this earnout, which is one of the processes. I guess how one of these moves is a process. How long would you say it takes between the moment where they say, look, I need to look for an acquirer. Then there is this time where you have to educate them that maybe the valuation has to be put at the right scale. Then you find someone which might be the right partner. You have the marriage which happens. And then you have this earnout or transition phase. All that process, how long does it last? It's a very difficult question because it's by case by case different. I have a case now where we made a good process. We selected the best offer. They started due diligence. Everything went well, but one of the shareholders want to stay in the company. And then after share purchase agreement was okay, then they came to the shareholders agreement. And in the minority rights, they are now disputing since nine months. They have not found a compromise on the minority rights. So this is something you didn't expect when all other hurdles have been taken. So it's very difficult to say. But the due diligence normally in smaller companies, it should be finished in six to eight weeks. Or depends how good is the documentation. If it's very good, you can do it in four weeks. And then I think the share purchase agreement is then, which takes a bit more time, especially when you have lawyers which want to make money out of that. So they try then to put everything in. So it's very important for the seller and buyer that they control their lawyers. Then it can be done quite quickly. So I think the biggest hurdle is to find an LOI and sign a term sheet. Then it should be normally in three months, I would say, finished everything. That's pretty if fast. If everything man. works well, yeah. Yeah, but they are small companies. They have almost no subsidiaries. You have to look at the backlog. You have audited numbers. If not, then you have to make a more intensified financial due diligence. And they have to anyway give a balance sheet guarantee that no tax reps and warrants. And very often what I've seen they keep 10 or 20% of the purchasing price on an escrow account for one year. This is also quite usual so that they are protected here somehow, the buyer. Especially when the seller leaves, when the seller sell and walk away. You mentioned how some of these companies exist for 45 years and have been profitable since almost day one and profitable all the way long and how still they might be difficult to get attractive for middle to big size groups because they're not making a lot of sales. Yet that sounds like, you know, the bootstrapped approach where you grow in a traditionally maybe conservative, but very stable and sustainable fashion. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have companies which to this date have never been profitable, which are listed, which are worth half a billion. If I take the example of an exfiltration, for instance, and it sounds like those companies which are going for hyper growth are more attractive to investors and big groups. Do you believe they're making a mistake here or do you understand the logic? Yeah, I understand the logic. It, you know, in also in our business, marketing is very important. I have an example 
of a membrane company which have fantastic membranes. I asked many membrane experts and they said this membrane, if this is true what they are stating, this is really a differentiating product. But the owner cannot sell his company. He is too technically driven. With one question, he goes in so nitty-gritty details that all investors fall asleep. And on the other side, you have a company where you have a good management, passionate, a lot of energy, we want to conquer the world. And then they get very easy, the money. Of course, they have to prove then. But I must say, it's very important that you have a committed, passionate management, which can sell their story very well. This is extremely important. Short term, yes. If it's mid-long term, if they oversell, we will also see such cases. If I get you right, and I've seen these cases quite a lot, so I, I see where you're coming from. The founder and the head of the company is usually a guy who invented the technology. So he's a, what a big group would call the chief technical officer, but here he's the boss because it's his company. And maybe sales is not his first asset and his first key talent. So he has a good time explaining the technology, but a bit more of a difficult time to convey the vision as to as why, why correct. that is really great. Correct. I have many such cases. Just tomorrow I visit one of these companies, found it, never take one loan, very profitable, find a very good niche, but he cannot sell his company. It's, it's impossible. He doesn't speak English at all. This is the next problem. And so in those cases, can you help them out by being this person which has this sales acumen and this business acumen which can translate their technical word into something which is attractive to investors? Yes, of course, I try to help them as good as I can, but my business model is totally different from other consultants. I do not go for retainers, which that's my way how I can get to the 35 sales side mandates. Because they do not want to pay retainers, the small companies, they don't know you. They don't want to spend money for, for and don't get value. This is what they see the risk. And I have a, very often a non-exclusivity. In some cases, I have exclusivity, but I don't need any only exclusivity for the investors I nominate. Then I'm protected. And then I work on a successful basis. So I can certainly make a teaser. I make a pitch deck. I help them. But I cannot spend too much time because you get retainer, you have maybe five or 10 targets. If you have no retainer, you need 30 targets in order to have a viable business model running. You know? If I try to translate that into my muggle and layman word, because I'm not a financial guy at all, you're acting a bit like in a rent office. So if someone wants to buy a house, there's going to be someone in between who will not get money for selling the house, but if the house is sold, takes a commission on it. So that's the same instead of the house, it's a water company, but that's the approach you have. Yes, this is what I'm doing, especially with the sell side mandates. It's different when I have a real buy side mandate, then I insist on a retainer. Everybody will insist because you have to spend a lot of time in screening the market, identifying the targets, revenues, ownership, market position. That is then like a headhunting. Eh? You have them to screen the market, find then you need some retainer because you spend a lot of time. And then at the end, the client may say, oh, I don't like that or goodbye. Or that. But sales side mandate in the regular, you, you check the company, you make a teaser, but you organize the course and you use your data bank and select 
who could be interested strategically in this target. When you have a buy side mandate, what is the type of inquiry you get? Is it a company who says, look, I don't have a COD measurement inside my portfolio, so I want one, please find me one. So then it's very targeted and you know what to look for. Or is it more like, hey, we have 30 or 50 millions because we're a family office, which we want to invest in sustainability. We have been told water is sustainable. What would you advise? Yeah, I think it's different. In the cases, the last cases I had was more or less, uh, we want to expand our business. For example, we have no foothold in the European market. And then they tell you exactly what they're looking for so they can use it as platform company where they put on their technologies, their solutions. And they do not want to start at Greenfield with ground zero. So this is what I have very often. Sometimes I have also, which say I want to enter in a new industry, for example, semiconductor industry or the pharma process, what that, then they're looking specified for such companies, which are already active in the market, which have references, which they can then build up. And then I have also cases where they, they want to grow unorganically worldwide and then they look worldwide but of clear they have a clear profile right? they want the epc company or they want only a component company or the equipment company there are many they say i don't touch epc that's too risky but i like equipment i like component i like services i like operations and maintenance or at least can so here and this is where you have to find out the profile they're looking, then what is the minimum size they want, what is the maximum size, want the majority, want the 100%, all these things you have to check with your client. I had a conversation on that microphone some months ago with Reinhard Hübner from Ski on Water, and he had that sentence, too much stupid money is chasing too little good targets. Do you share that opinion? Did it change with the fact that now money is a bit more expensive because of the interest rates? Or what's your opinion there? Yeah, I think it's not completely wrong. I can say that's correct, especially water got now very important with sustainability, the whole SCG discussion. This is drives a lot of finance investors, a lot of private equity funds into this part. I must say water gets much more interesting than five years ago or three years ago. This is what I see everywhere. Water is a key point where they want to invest and very often they do not understand the water business. They like just water, megatrend, water shortage, climate change. This is the driver. And this is when he meant stupid, means they, they are not so experienced in water, which part of water. And that can be, have certainly made also the market very hot. And I think it should come now in a more reasonable level back again. So the big consolidation wave we have been experiencing over the past three, four years, you think will calm down and come to an end? Yeah, I don't know. And the problem is that the smaller companies which I have, which want to grow, they need capital because to access the market is the biggest problem for them, right? to build up distribution channels and so on. And here, certainly a bigger group is, can be very helpful for them. Other, otherwise, they have to build up their own, and that needs a lot of capital and time. So there will be always a good bunch of companies looking for a strategic investor, finance investor, to grow their business in future. What is they small? I have also seen companies, which is amazing, which are very profitable, but they do not want to grow. They are happy what they are doing. I guess you're opening a very interesting philosophic question, which is, 
do you need to grow? Because maybe you're sustainable and very happy with your three or five millions of business, which is already a huge thing to build in that sector. And then why would you need to take big risk to go to the next scale? Yeah, I would say, yes, the smaller companies where the owner have put personal guarantees for bond lines, for credit lines, they have a certain limit. They do not want to go beyond this. Otherwise, they risk their home and everything. So here, there's, they therefore have such cases where they see now I need a partner who relieves me from my guarantees. And so then I can grow the business. Otherwise, they stay small. They're happy what they're doing. They get a nice dividend. They have a nice living. The only problem is when the whole company is focused on this person only, it's very difficult to sell. Because every buyer says, sorry, I need you for another two, three years. Yeah, we have to build up a successor. And they're all nervous when he leaves. What happens with the networks, with the contacts, all these things. So this is also then a risk. I have to go a bit back in time now. Actually, the reason why you have this network and that so many people trust you for being the one which can maybe bring them to the next scale and look for investors and connect them with the right type of profiles is because that's what you're doing in your third life. But in your second life, which we scratched a bit in the opening, you made some very bold and impressive moves. And there's one which I'd like to revisit with you is that in 2013, you've been creating Aquarium and leading Aquarium for the following years. And in 2014, you've acquired the, at that time, insolvent Heger Nelsasser, which you turned into H&E. And that was a very, very, very bold move. And maybe I didn't use enough very words here. Can you tell me the story? What led you to take such a step? Of course, when Aquarium was founded, there was also private equity money, which helped to grow the company. And the clear mission was to acquire companies and not to grow organically because the start of Aquarium was from zero, more or less. And Hagen Elsässer was in troubles, but not Hagen Elsässer, it was the Schulz Rena Group. They were in liquidity crunch. And H and E, Hagen Elsässer was interesting enough, not loss making. They were in the industrial area money making, but they have given all the loans upstream, all the guarantees. So when then the parent, the grandparent collapsed, it was thrown into insolvency as well. And that was certainly luck for us because we were one of the last interested buyers and therefore finally we got it. And I must say, Agent Germany was a good acquisition. The company is doing very well or quite well. It's not loss making. And from this point, it was then the key part of the Aquarium Group. So that means Aquarium starts from zero in 2013 and in 2014, it gobbles up a company which is pretty big. Yeah. How do you digest such an acquisition? Yeah, because we had former colleagues who worked for Hagen Elsässer. They left Hagen Elsässer and so it was for us not so difficult because I could get these people and they come back to continue to run Hagen Elsässer, which they know very well. And so therefore for them was a home play. Right? It, was, it was quite simple and easy to restart the company. Of course, every insolvency is a tough situation, as you know, with suppliers, with clients, to regain confidence with clients, to regain confidence with suppliers and with banks. All these things have been quite challenging. So it's not so easy as it looks like. You need then some time until the market and the stakeholders trusting you again. If I get you right, the first key learning is 
it's a people's deal. If you have the right profiles and the right people among your team, which understand your target and which have a good fit with the targets, then chances are that it's going to be successful. Yeah. So in our business, people are most important, I think, in many or than almost all, especially engineering is a service business more or less. So you need very good engineers, talent engineers. You need a reliable, trustful engineers, which are making the whole costing and the project execution here, very experienced people are needed. And when you have this team, then you can be quite successful uh, and a good procurement of course as well. Uh, then you can have a success. This is the DNA of an engineering company. That's one of the two stories which I picked into your past. I could have picked much more, but I had to pick some. The other you explain a bit in the opening is when you joined BWT. So you were sent from Austria to the very distant Switzerland to take over Christwater. And you've been multiplying the revenue of the company by five. The company was growing quite strongly, but organically, because of semiconductor pharma, which was growing quite strong. But uh, the idea was an IPO, therefore I was hired. But the margin, the EBIT margin was too low. We were always around 2% on average. And with a 2% EBIT margin, it's not very attractive to make an IPO. And therefore, we were more or less, a, it was a T-merger spin-off of PWT. So we had a separate listing on the Vienna Stock Exchange. So we were then public, but it was not a real IPO. It was a T-merger or a spin-off. And the reason of the low margin was certainly that we had not enough differentiating technologies in our portfolio. And semiconductor is very volatile business, as you know, few years boom, then few years low. And pharma, we could build up step by step in a stable business. But of course, in the other areas like immunishable drinking water, seawater, or sewage treatment, the margins are very low. So when you make small mistakes, then you are, you had immediately a negative result in the books. So, and therefore the idea was to bring, for example, the Chris group had no biological technologies, was important to bring aerobic, anaerobic in, and all these things which were missing at this time. Yeah. That means you are hired to, to take it to IPO. Very swiftly, you realize that the EBITs wouldn't be a good fit for the IPO. You finally go for the demerger route, but still you multiply the sales by five. If I understand you right, by focusing on the right niche application, I mean, pharma in, in Switzerland is bigger than the niche, but the right application, which has potentially better margin and also less risk than the traditional EPC business. Yeah, it cannot be so general, say it. It is, it is always different factors coming in. Of course, we have been too widespread. We have not enough differentiating technologies and this have to be changed. Anyway, when I left in the Chris group, one year later, it was sold by the owners to Days of Vivo. But PWD kept the pharma business, which was certainly the jewel in the group because it was a constant. I mean, semiconductor is also nice, but it's very volatile. While pharma is a constant business when your international setup is correct and we become from a purified water to a total system integration. Also we offer the whole solution to the pharma industry and Therefore, PWT Pharma, now it is, as it is called, now is market leader worldwide in this sector. I'm trying to extract the key learnings. To me, the key learning of your H&E story was that it's a people business, as you confirmed. Here, the key learning, if I'm right, is focus 
on the right sector and on the best fit with the sector, would you have across a very rich path a third best practice or key piece of advice which you could share with the companies wanting to strive? Yeah, I would say certainly the very important in this business, you can produce components like membranes, pumps. It's a different story. When we talk about project engineering business, of course, very important is standardization, but everybody knows that recurring revenues are very important to get a stable cash flow. And I would say extremely important is the risk management, especially when you have many subsidiaries that you really try to get good control over the costing, project execution, and that you have also good, let's say, project manager and reliable and trustful managing directors in each company. You know? So I would say, looking back, it, it is very important for me that such a group is run by technical guys and not by commercial guys. You know? Is it something you learned the hard way? way? Yes, Yes, of course. (laughs) Coming back to the present and now to the future, I'm really dragging you across the timeline. With KMM Consulting, you have this portfolio of companies which you're helping. I guess you have a vision for your impact over the years to come. And if I make you look in my crystal ball and you look into the next five or 10 years, years. what will tell you you that you've succeeded? Yeah, of course, I want to grow the company. I want to hire employees. I want to build up an international network. Either I do it for my own or I join another consulting group that I have to see what are the pros and cons. But the clear is to become a bigger international consulting group. While I will always focus on the lower end of the market, that means with the small companies, maximum small to mid-cap company sizes, because here I see a good niche for my activities. So a, a good fit between your network, your experience, your expertise, and the needs. Because I was always in the s- small mid-cap industry. I was never in Aveolia or in the big group Siemens or not. So I re- was always in the small mid-cap world. Yeah. Well, Carmichael, it's been a pleasure to have that deep dive with you. Thanks a lot for the openness and everything you shared. I have a tradition to close on that microphone. You got the opening tradition with the postcards. The closing tradition is the rapid fire questions. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So here I have short questions which aim for short answers. And my first one is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? Yeah, this was in my former career, the IPO from Wolford, that was my uh, IPO of Wolford when I brought the tax and luxury stocking to the market. It was a big success and very interesting experience. And of course, you mentioned already the takeover of Hagen Elsässer was certainly also a big achievement, which was certainly very lucky at this moment. Yeah. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? Yeah, I mentioned also before, there's certainly the risk management in the countries. You cannot cover all risk and something always happens. One big risk happened to my group at this time, which nobody had foreseen, political risk. But of course, to have not too many subsidiaries and having a good risk management stored. Yeah. Is there something you're doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? I do not know. I don't think I will work 10 years anymore. So I think... <laughs> 
Uh, I will want to build up the next five years now this business, and then I guess I will be then more looking at roles in supervisory boards and, and just that's it. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? Yeah, that's important. Uh, certainly reuse is very important. Now, CO2 reduction is a very important point. What I see in the digitalization, these are the main drivers from my point at the moment in this sector. And you should focus on that. Yeah. And last question, would you have someone to recommend me that should definitely invite as soon as possible on that microphone? Yes, I know veterans, or let's say gurus, icons in the water business, which I use regularly as consultants. That's mostly technical guys like Jim Hotchkiss or Werner Gessler, which is very strong in sludge, or the Wolfgang Neubrandt is a brilliant technical guy because this is my weak side. And I got very good inputs from this because they understand the techno-commercial side very well. That's a good advice always, yeah. So I think we're back to the first advice, which is have the right team and the right people uh, yeah. around you. Thanks a lot for sharing everything you did today. If people want to follow up with you, where shall they contact you the best? Yeah, with my email, kmmillauerconsulting.com, but you can always on the website. I think this email is the best way. So as always, the email, the websites are in the show notes. So if you're listening to that, just have a look. I think it's worth checking out how you can interact with someone of your experience. Thanks a lot. And will you be at the upcoming Global Water Summit in Berlin? Sure. So I I'm think looking we'll, forward to it. Yeah. We will have the chance have to meet chance. in person. Well, thanks a lot. And then talk to you soon, probably in Berlin. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.